Warning. This episode contains foul language, as well as mentions of suicide, murder, pedophilia, and kidnapping. are listening to Keep It Weird, the podcast for all things strange and unusual, unsettling and unnerving, creepy and crawly, and all around mystifying. Each week we get to sit down and chat about something weird, and this week is no exception. We've covered several unsolved mysteries on this show before. We've rubbed our chins in thought, we've pondered, we've even pulled out our hair, trying to imagine what in the world could have happened to these people, places, and things. We thought it was time to take a break from the wondering and talk about some solved mysteries. Some that went unsolved for decades, some that looked like one thing and turned out to be another, and some with so many twists and turns you almost forgot where it started in the first place. Last week, Amy chronicled the horrific story of the Stainer family, and this week, Amy is back, and Lauren and I are telling you guys about two more mysteries that went from unexplained too very explained. My name is Ashley and I'm alone in my living room introducing you to the episode. Hi guys. Love you. Um, old business. Next week we have an Ask a Weirdo episode. Lauren and I got like 40 questions, which is amazing. Thank you to everyone who sent some in. Tomorrow, as in Saturday, September 11th. Oh, 9-11. Huh. Well, uh, tomorrow, September 11th, we are pulling three patron names out of a hat to give away free copies of the book that I was just published in. <laughs> For those of you who don't follow our social media, first of all, where are you at? Uh, we have a ton of fun on there, but yeah, for those of you who don't follow our social media, the book is called The Feminine Macabre. It's volume two, and it's a collection of articles and essays written by women and non-binary individuals about the paranormal. There are essays chronicling strange hauntings, um, paranormal investigators throughout history, hoaxes, tarot. It's really, really wonderful, and you guys should absolutely check it out or join our Patreon today, Friday, September 10th, my father's birthday. Happy birthday, Dad. This is like... This is spiraling. Um, happy birthday, Daddy. Join our Patreon today, September 10th, to put your name in the hat to win a copy. And you'd be supporting a show that you love. It's a win-win. Win-win-win. Win-win for you. Win for me. Okay. Before we get into it, as usual, when we cover anything true crime, there's going to be mentions of suicide, murder, kidnapping, pedophilia. It's dark. All right. It's super dark and we are total goobs. So we make jokes throughout, but nothing about these stories are funny. Nothing about them are comical. It's just a comedy podcast. If anything we say offends you, I really, truly apologize. It was absolutely unintentional. And most of the things we say, we don't even mean we just say it to be funny. So sit back 
and enjoy the episode. Know that anything said about these cases are just reiterations of the facts of the case and theories either given by other individuals that we explore or our own personal theories and opinions that hold no weight whatsoever because we are not detectives, we are not psychologists, and we are not doctors. That probably covers our ass enough, right? Let's find out together, shall we? Last week, we left off praising Amy for her famous twists and turns, so let's just pick it up right back there. Oh, All right, man. M. Night Shyamalan, are you ready for another murder? <laughs> Today, I'm going to be sharing the investigation of the murder of William Sparkman Jr., at 6.15 p.m. on September 12, 2009, this was pretty recent, a man named Jerry Weaver, along with his wife and their daughter, Brittany, were heading to Hoskins Cemetery to visit the graves of some of his wife's family. This cemetery is in Daniel Boone National Forest in Kentucky, basically in the middle of nowhere. It's not an easy place to find. It's about 100 yards off of Arnett's Fork Road, which is already an out-of-the-way road as it is. I'm just trying to paint a picture of how in the middle of fucking nowhere this okay. road is. I appreciate it. So here this family is heading to the cemetery, guns in hand, because no one goes out into the woods in Kentucky without protection. Sure. <laughs> and Weaver spots a red pickup truck near the edge of a clearing and went to check it out. And as he walked around it, a figure came into view about 40 yards away. And it was a motionless, naked man hanging from a tree. Mm -hmm. So Weaver got his family out of there, obviously, called 911 and met a state trooper to show him where this body was. The man was slumped forward. His feet were on the ground and his knees were hovering about half a foot above the ground. And he had a noose of white nylon rope around his neck that had been tossed over the branch above him, wrapped around a nearby tree and tied off on a third tree. The man was wearing only socks. His wrists and ankles were bound with gray duct tape. A red rag was stuffed into his mouth, secured with tape wrapped around his head. A U.S. Census Bureau ID card dangled from the tape next to his right ear what? and scrawled across the man's chest in ink from a black felt tip pen were three giant letters, F-E-D, FED. For being a Census Bureau worker? Right. The license plate on the red Chevy pickup matched the ID card. This man was 51-year-old William Sparkman Jr., who lived about 40 miles away in London, Kentucky. And I don't have to tell you how upset I am that I have to repeat London, Kentucky so many times. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't love it. <laughs> Paris, I don't love Texas. that for you. Paris, <laughs> Texas. Cairo, Illinois. Uh, it's pronounced Cairo, and you know that. Cairo. <laughs> Kentucky State Police Detective Donald Wilson was put on the case. He had been a state trooper for six years, and just two days before this, he was promoted to detective, and this would be his first case, and what a doozy yeah. it is. Jimmy. He really cut his teeth on something. Really... <laughs> lucked out oh, slash boy. did not luck out at yeah. all because this case took a long time to solve. So it, it actually, this case has a ton of details and I really encourage people to read about it yourself to get an appreciation for how much investigation went into this, but I'm going to highlight some of the biggest moments from the case. So first and foremost, I want to touch on the area. So this is Appalachia. Mm. So for anyone who doesn't know about Appalachia, lawlessness is the best term I can use. Yeah. A history of 
lawlessness. Throughout the late 19th century, Clay County had a history of like grisly feuds between rival families. Do you know what I mean? Like famous feuds. (laughs) There were the Bakers versus the Howards, the Philpots versus the Griffins, the Gerards versus the Whites. These were huge. They garnered national headlines. I we have to have a rival family episode because some of these stories are yeah. wild. I was like, I do have to tell you actually really that I tried to come on for a feud episode and you said no. Yeah, I Ashley. remember because I was like, um, I don't know if we can think of any. And then I just started thinking about how many feuds there's there a are million how feuds. much i love drama so next time we're doing feuds, i mean we just got finished us. talking about how much we love the housewives that's basically what the feud episode would be you know all here's the drama. The thing. Yeah, i was actually just thinking that <laughs> maybe i just wasn't into housewives yet and i didn't know how much i needed feuds oh you, you needed know what that i think everybody if you need a reason to subscribe to the patreon <laughs> We're going to do a feud episode. Feuds. So Appalachia. Beyond that. Oh, and and for anyone who's like, it's Appalachia. It's Appalachia. Appalachia. But you can also say Appalachia if you want. The people that live there will not enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) But also assassinations are really common in the area, especially around election times. This moves us kind of more in the 20th century. Uh, newspapers describe this place as a hive of bloodshed and a place that didn't take kindly to the prying eyes of journalists and detectives, basically outsiders of any kind. A lot of people in the area are also known for their anti-government sentiments, um, and that's been on the rise the last few decades, especially when Obama got elected, and I don't think I have to tell you why. Mm -hmm. No offense to any listeners from Kentucky or Appalachia. I, too, am from a place riddled with racism, but you have to call it like it is sometimes. Yeah, they hate people from Hawaii there. (laughs) Yes, I don't have to tell you why. We all know how Appalachia feels about Hawaii. So at the time of Sparkman's murder, for example, Obama had been in office for eight months. Glenn Beck had recently told his followers the time for silent dissent is long past. The Department of Homeland Security had warned of the growing potential of violence from domestic fringe groups growing out of right wing extremism. And this was an area where if you show up on someone's porch as a stranger, you're likely to get a gun pointed at your face. Politicians and authority figures were referred to as crooks and liars. Um, And it's also a place with a pretty large Fed presence due to the amount of meth labs, the opioid epidemic, and marijuana fields that were being busted constantly. So just walking into the investigation, this is the area in which the crime took place. Mm -hmm. So first of all, Detective Wilson, you know, he immediately went out to the scene of the crime. He saw the nakedness, the duct tape, the ID card, the word Fed on the chest, And he also noticed a trickle of blood had leaked out of Sparkman's right ear, which made him wonder if he had been struck. He also noted that the tape binding Sparkman's ankles was tightly wrapped, but the tape around his wrists was loose and full of kinks. Also, strangely, a separate strip of tape ran over the top of Sparkman's head, securing his glasses to his face. Other important things he noted about this particular crime scene, they found three red rags matching the one in Sparkman's mouth. They found a short length of rope apparently cut from the one used to hang him with. Uh, He noticed there was excess rope where the knot was secured to the second tree, suggesting it had been tied, then untied, tightened, and retied. The area around the body was undisturbed. There were no tire tracks from vehicles other than Sparkman's. Inside the bed of Sparkman's truck was a pile of clothes neatly folded. 
uh, dress pants, a polo, polo shirt, boxer briefs, basically everything he wasn't wearing, but no shoes and no wallet. And Detective Wilson noted that it was interesting the truck hadn't been disposed of because criminals in that area were known to burn vehicles to eliminate evidence. Mm-hmm. So next step was to go to Sparkman's house and try to find his cell phone because Nextel um, had said that his phone was either turned off or out of service. They couldn't pinpoint its location. So search warrant in hand, they headed out to his ranch house. Detective Wilson described the house as untidy, but no indication a struggle had taken place. There were cobwebs clinging to the walls and a layer of dust covering most of it. They found his dog, a Jack Russell Terrier, alive and well. Uh, with several bags of dog food, multiple of which were open, a brand new printer, but no computers. But that's really all they found. Hmm. So at this same time, about 100 miles north of here, a forensic pathologist was performing the autopsy on uh, William. The preliminary cause of death was asphyxiation, which everyone kind of guessed. There was no sign of trauma to the head, and the blood that had leaked out of his ear, it turned out, was the result of an insect infestation, which (sighs) is the worst thing I've ever heard. Yes. Traces of the red fibers were found stuck to the duct tape on his wrists and ankles, and a lack of bruising around the taped areas led forensics to believe he had not struggled against the bindings. Which was interesting, especially for the hands, because he was bound loosely, and that's where Detective Wilson theorized that they had loosened because he put up a fight or tried to escape, but no bruising, no struggle. Was he dead or unconscious before he was bound? Things were starting to not make as much sense. Yeah. Mm. In the truck, mm. they found a laptop. Uh-huh. Mm, guys. <laughs> In the truck, <laughs> they found a laptop briefcase, but they never found a laptop. Also missing was his gun, wallet, and phone. Found his credit card holder, but no cards. There were no blood or other bodily fluids found. The dashboard and steering wheel held traces of red fibers, indicating the surfaces had been wiped down to eliminate fingerprints. Um, And the fibers appeared to match the red rags found at the scene and in his mouth. Mm -hmm. So, because Sparkman had worked for the government and because he had the word fed written on his chest, uh, Detective Wilson thought it was a good idea to call the FBI, and he was correct. In fact, they were pretty pissed that he did not call them for two whole days yeah like uh we should have been your first call so um the fbi immediately opened a joint investigation with the state troopers the following day sparkman's 20 year old son josh had shown up at the london police station with several documents one of which being a justin case letter written by his father he had found in a filing cabinet Well, it turns out William Sparkman had been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2007, but had been cancer-free for the past year. And the letter basically was written back then and told Josh what he needed to do with the family's finances if he ever passed away. Makes sense. Which is a good idea to have something like that. Especially, he's 51. Yeah, it's very responsible. You need a will. I honestly am always like, why don't I have one? Like, anything can happen and I have a child. So, yes, love it. Yeah, everybody get on writing your wills, except for me. I don't need to. (laughs) <laughs> Lauren you need a will I do no, I'm Lauren, being an idiot I you have a baby. You need, listen you need life insurance too call Joey I know actually me and Alice have <laughs> talked about that <laughs> when you if need Joey, life, you insurance, life insurance call, call Joey Joe Oaks <laughs> I think he needs a theme song okay continue so um, the feds took over. They were a little bit more thorough. They um, they went to Sparkman's house and found a couple interesting things, uh, but nothing that like was 
a huge breakthrough. They found a scary fixed blade knife and a pair of black cargo pants in Josh's old bedroom, along with a syringe with an unknown substance in it. And like I said, none of these items really raised too many red flags until info started coming in about Josh. Mm. Apparently, he was a little bit of a misfit. He had a pretty rocky relationship with his father. He was adopted by Sparkman when he was two, and he ended up being a high school dropout, ran with the wrong crowd, had trouble with drugs, wrecked multiple cars, and was known to scream at his father publicly, which is not great. And it seems by the way people describe his clothing, he might have been goth. Okay. But I can't, there's no pictures or anything, so I just saw the phrase, his clothing reflected his rebelliousness. Ugh. And so he looked like he listened to my chemical romance. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. There was that line and then there was the black cargo pants. And then they also noted that he had a shirt with bold letters that had two words on it. And the words were psychopath. But honestly, like I'd wear that shirt. Yeah. I remember so, that shirt. I've yeah, seen that I shirt. On I can people. envision it in my yeah. head. I was imagining a like a Thrasher shirt or something, but yeah, I'm feeling this vibe. I don't I know how much of a smoking gun that is, but so this is four days after the body was found, and now Josh is the first person of interest because they know he had a bad relationship with his dad. But I do want to backtrack and talk a bit about William Sparkman and Josh's relationship because obviously it, it definitely comes into play. So Sparkman adopted Josh in 1991 when he was two, like I said, but he didn't fit the mold of a typical adoptive parent. He was 33. He was single. And at the time, a Boy Scout director stationed in Texas. Hmm. The Boy Scouts were apparently a huge part of William's life. He loved books on compass use, coin collecting, knot tying. He had all the badges, (laughs) all the badges. He didn't mess around. And not tying, you say? <laughs> not tying. He became a professional scout and went on to oversee scouting programs in several Florida counties as well. And throughout his life, he showed very little interest in dating. In fact, I can't find any record of him having a girlfriend or a boyfriend for that matter. Hmm. He basically just followed the Boy Scouts around before moving to London, Kentucky And after Sparkman was found dead, his mother and others closest to him immediately suspected Josh or his friends. Yeah. So that right there is like, why? Okay, if if this kid, I mean, technically it's not this kid's grandmother, it's adopted grandmother, but if the grandmother is like, it's him. Yeah. That seems a little weird. I would believe okay, the grandmother also, if they're saying it's definitely this kid. Like, okay. You guys have to remember, there are lots of people who are like, Adopted kids don't count. Oh, yeah. yeah. So his grandmother, despite the fact that she should consider him to be her grandson, it's very Mm -hmm. possible that she considered him to be her son's ward or whatever. Yeah, Yeah, sure. You know, she could still have always thought of him as an outsider and not accepted Mm -hmm. him. Yeah. Yeah, so Sparkman's (laughs) mother. I I couldn't remember the last thing I said. His mother... suspected josh and his friends (laughs) also sparkman had made josh a beneficiary of one of his two life insurance plans and this was laid out in his just in case letter to josh which if josh had read it prior to finding it after his dad's death would mean he had a motive for murder right so they go after josh They found out he worked and lived 125 miles southwest of London. 
He worked at a Church's Chicken, which is a fast food restaurant for anyone who's not from the Midwest or the South. And he claimed that Josh said he worked closing shifts every night the week of his father's death, except for the 12th, which was the day the body was found. And Josh Josh also said his car had broken down earlier that week and he was depending on friends to get around. So he hadn't left Cookville the entire week. And his manager confirmed this. He had worked closing all week. He was there every single night till like 10 or 11 p.m. His roommate then was questioned. It was a 21-year-old girl named Gracie, who he apparently had met through a church group a decade earlier. They were best friends. She considered him a brother, like a little brother. And she confirmed Josh's car was undrivable, and she had seen him every day that week. So he has a he has a pretty airtight alibi. He's got like clock-ins and clock-outs. Yeah. Interesting. Right? So at the same time they're questioning Gracie, his roommate... A 20-year-old named Lowell Adams shows up at the police station in London, Kentucky. Because a day earlier, investigators stopped by his house and told his mom they would like to speak with him about Sparkman's death. Because it turns out Lowell's name was mentioned in the letter Josh had found. Sparkman had listed him as the beneficiary of his second insurance policy. According to Sparkman in his letter, he knew Lowell because sometimes Lowell would accompany him while he performed his census duties for, quote, backup. Okay. Because like I said, this area is dangerous. You don't just like go on people's porches and knock on their door, which is kind of a census worker's job. Right. Mm -hmm. But that is illegal. You're not allowed to do that as a census worker. But, you know, that's beside the point. That has nothing to do with this He was living fast and loose. Yeah. You know? He was. Yeah. (laughs) Not following the rules. So far, he's the most interesting census worker in the world. (laughs) You've ever never heard an interesting story about a census worker. Got me hooked. So Lowell tells investigators, uh, Lowell again, twenty-one or twenty-year-old boy. Lowell tells investigators he had been good friends with Josh Sparkman's son until tenth grade when they started to drift apart. William Sparkman had become a friend of the family and even tutored Lowell in math. So for the past two years, Sparkman had been paying him like seven twenty-five an hour for security and navigational help while carrying out his census work. And like I said, this is a very much so a violation of official census policy. Lowell did say he was uncomfortable at first, but got used to it. And, you know, they didn't get caught, so he felt fine. Mm -hmm. He was asked about Sparkman's romantic life. Lowell said they'd never discussed it. Lowell said he'd last accompanied Sparkman on September 5th, exactly a week before he was found dead. On September 8th, Lowell had a missed call from Sparkman who did not leave a message and he never spoke to Sparkman again. Hmm. The investigators didn't fully grasp Lowell's relationship with Sparkman and they scheduled him for a polygraph later that week. Okay, so why Sparkman was doing census work. I got to get into this real quick. So he was involved with Boy Scouts, but he resigned from his post and started volunteering at his son's elementary school after he began attending. So this is Josh. He said he was determined to help Josh, who was struggling in the classroom, to succeed. And eventually he was offered a paying job as an instructional assistant, which was a position he ended up holding for nine years. It paid garbage, but offered Sparkman the opportunity to work with kids, which he loved. Okay. Um, he was always upbeat and eager to help students, and the students adored him. He was always on time, always willing to work extra shifts, always willing to help other teachers. He was genuinely liked. He was a good but guy. But even so... Oh. 
Well, <laughs> well, well, Lauren, I think we've learned don't ever say that about Listen, anybody. I wanted to try and set up the story Never. so that she could have a big twisty moment. Is oh, that I'm sorry. what you wanted? <laughs> so let's let's take that again. So he was a good guy. Yeah, IP sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> he was genuinely liked by people, but even so, the s- teachers at the school thought he was weird. Oh, a weirdo. He didn't seem to socialize with adults very well. Mm. He could appear distant and at times be very blunt. Mm. And he was described as the kind of person people would tread carefully around to not say the wrong thing to him. Okay. Not great. Again, never spoke about dating. His colleagues never knew him to ever date anyone. He was a homebody. He didn't go out. He didn't seem to have any friends. But anyway, in 2005, Sparkman started supplementing his income by working part-time for the Census Bureau. Okay, makes sense. At this point, the investigation gets a little sidetracked because they get some bad intel. They got sent off investigating some local drug lord who had skipped town. But eventually, they ruled it all out because the timelines didn't match up and the murder didn't match up. Uh. Like, locals in the area would have just shot a guy and thrown him in a body of water. They wouldn't have done this whole, like, send a message to the feds thing. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? Totally. Like, it, it wasn't the M.O. of, like, local, the local um, no. misfits. They would have been just been like, get rid of him. Yeah. yeah. And again, they would have burned the truck or they yes. would have submerged it in water. I'm with you. So this is where the case takes a complete left turn. <laughs> like, 100% curveball. No one could have seen it coming. Lowell Adams shows up to take his polygraph with the FBI 10 days later after his initial interview and basically says, like, can we talk? <laughs> like, oh. basically, he said he had not been truthful with them the week before. He definitely did not have anything to do with his murder, but he did have information and he didn't want to fail the polygraph and be accused of something horrible because he was trying to hide this information he did have. Oh, so, damn. Well, well, no. Fair enough. It, which is very valid. And yeah. he told investigators that Sparkman had spoken with him several times about killing himself. In fact, the Saturday before he was found dead, he told Lowell he was going to do it that Wednesday, which is approximately when he would have died. He had been yeah. hanging for either 24 to 48 hours, depending on. I, I don't know if they ever actually got a, a time of death, but okay. he was found on a Saturday and he, they, they determined that he either did it on Wednesday or Thursday. So they knew it had been a couple days, probably. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He had been there for a couple days. So he said Sparkman had told him his cancer had returned, the drugs were not working, and he wasn't expected to make it beyond October. Mm. He told Lowell he wanted to commit suicide to spare himself the agony of dying of cancer. And he said he had it all planned out. He picked a place in Clay County. He told him he was going to throw a rope around a tree, attach cinder blocks to his feet and hurl himself down a hill. So he was going to find a tree next to a hill and throw the cinder blocks off and and, along with his own body and, and hang himself. Okay. He also told him he'd already practiced asphyxiating himself by putting bags over his head and even once trying it with a rope. He told Lowell he was pretty sure he couldn't do it all on his own and he had asked for Lowell's help, in which Lowell refused. That Saturday, one week before he died, or one week before he was found dead, uh, he had asked Lowell to get drunk with him later in the day and he picked up a case of Budweiser and this was confirmed by uh, a receipt that was found. Lowell turned him down. Damn Lowell. 
Lowell was like, I don't want anything to do with this. Like, don't even talk to me. Don't even be telling me this shit. I mean, that's fair. I he would said, feel very similarly. But I know. Also, very similarly. I but mean, I, it would be like, hard to turn a guy down, though, when he's like, I'm about to die. Drink Budweiser with me. I'd be very torn. Yeah, but if that guy had also said, like, I'm going to make it look like a murder, I'd be yeah, like, then don't no, even call, right. lose my right. number. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Yes. <laughs> lose my so, number. Yeah. Lose my number. My number. <laughs> Forget my name. <laughs> well, Lowell was, he said he turned him down because he was concerned people might think that either he was in on it, which is fair, or that they were engaged in homosexual activity, which oh. he was very emphatic about that 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 was not the case which i thought was interesting yeah but we'll come back okay to that hmm. yeah all right well it was rural kentucky so. yes well true that's true so they didn't actually suspect lowell he seemed truthful although they could not administer the polygraph right away because apparently um because they spoke with him for so long beforehand it could render inaccurate results i'm actually super impressed by the investigation yeah. <laughs> like the investigators <laughs> on this case yeah. and not just wanting to wrap it up by whatever means necessary um i have seen way too many true crime <laughs> documentaries to know that there are investigators that would have put him under a polygraph right there and not cared that exactly it fit, that and just failed. been like here's the results the end yeah and they also said that Lowell didn't describe every last detail of what happened. He even got some things wrong, like the cinder blocks and stuff. Like, that's not how he ended up doing it. So right. they didn't believe they could place him at the scene if, even if they wanted to without evidence. So, But he took a polygraph eight days later and he passed. Hmm. And Josh, his son, also took a polygraph and passed. And both of them had alibis that checked out. All right. So. I'm scared. Once they started to look at this case as a suicide, things started to make more sense. Sparkman's home was in foreclosure. They found out he was about $50,000 in debt. That even though Josh had been known to scream at him and treat him like shit and walk all over him, he still gave him money for stuff all the time, uh, bailing him out of jail, buying him food, putting money on his prepaid Walmart credit card, etc. So he was still like would do whatever Josh asked his son asked him to do. Yeah. Even though he didn't have the money to do it. He had just kicked Josh out for good, which is when he moved in with Gracie after Josh had been arrested for receiving a stolen gun from a friend and was placed on house arrest. Definitely seemed like Josh was up to no good, but he had airtight alibi, so it doesn't seem like he did it. Yeah. Sparkman had just worked his way through school. He wanted to get a full-time position at a school and get paid actual money to teach. But even though he got a degree, he couldn't find a job. Um, he was really excited because a math teacher position had opened up at a high school near his house. And he applied and he told all his colleagues about it and how he's going to get this job, blah, 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 blah. And then the position was given to someone else. Mm -hmm. And from what <sighs> I read... He did not hide his disappointment, but I don't know what that means. Like, was he sullen, angry, sad? Yeah. I don't know. Mad. Was he setting fires about it? Was he setting fires? Like, what was happening? How angry was he? But yeah, all of this in debt, losing his home, unable to get the work he wanted. His relationship with his son was deteriorating even further. They had now a bit of a motive for suicide. Yeah. So forensics started to put more together too for example it was noted that he had a fractured bone in his neck that was almost healed a sign that an injury had occurred in the past and had nothing to do with his death which supported lowell's claim that sparkman had practiced suffocating himself 
Mm. Once before. Okay. The loose tape on the hands started to make sense because he was having to do a lot of work with his hands taped together. Yep. And therefore, it would have loosened a bit, but not caused bruising because it wasn't a struggle. It was just his hands were moving around. They also took a closer look at the lettering on his chest. This is actually brilliant. A woman named Emily Craig was called in. She was a renowned forensic anthropologist, and she was tasked with reviewing this case. And she was also a professional illustrator. So she noticed a mark at the top of the letter E on his chest that looked to her to be what illustrators refer to as a bead, which is essentially a drop of ink that appears at the end of a marker stroke. And at the bottom of that same letter, she noticed the black ink was evenly dispersed, which signals the start of the stroke. And the other letters, upon closer investigation, had the same features. So that Hmm. determined, that indicated that the letters on his chest had been drawn upside down. I love people that are this smart to know those things, like that someone can come in and see where the stroke started. So it looked like he had written it on himself. But he is not a handwriting analyst because that's nonsense. (laughs) No, no, no. This had everything to do with the ink. Yes. Yeah, exactly. But I just, we've debunked it. So Mm -hmm. no more handwriting analysis. (laughs) And also no more polygraphs, guys. Oh, polygraphs drive me nuts. I think that they can both be good tools to use, but definitely not uh, concrete evidence of anything. No. You can't solve a crime uh, based No more polygraphs. Throw them in the ocean. <laughs> so he wrote Fed on his own chest. They also took his glasses to the Walmart where he had them prescribed and found out they were made to correct 2400 vision. Okay. Wait, Hello? 2400. What even is that? It, like, you can barely read the E. Uh, that, the, like the top know, of the chart. At uh, the top of the yeah. chart. I mean, I just, that's, I've never heard it go up that high. Me neither. I even Googled I it. it. ended at like 10. No. I Googled oh my it God. because I was be like, so I wonder bad. if this is. Yeah, I was like, I wonder if this is a mistype, like a typo. It's supposed to be 2040. No, 2400 vision is a thing, and he had it. Isn't that basically legally blind? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he without his glasses, completely blind. okay. 2400 vision. So that also answered a piece of the puzzle. Why were his glasses taped to his head? He wouldn't have been able to pull this off without his glasses. So he Mm -hmm. taped them to his own head. And uh, from there, all the DNA found at the scene belonged to Sparkman. And now the ropes in the body positioning started to make sense, too. The fact that one rope had to be tied and untied a few times and cut shorter showed that the height had to be adjusted, which if someone else was hanging him, they could have adjusted it while he hung. Right. But he had to, like, yeah, go test it doing and go, it like, oh, nope, too short. So he had to go and, like, retie it. And investigators pointed out his feet were on the ground. So if he had wanted to save himself, all he, he would have had to do is stand up. Yep. And he could have Well, saved unless himself. he had been passed out. Unless he had been passed out or forced. But again, well, his hands no trauma whatsoever. Him? No, his hands were taped in front of him. Oh. Yeah. Mm. And just no him. sign of struggle at all, really. No. Okay. No. No bruising, no sign. Even the taped parts, like there was no sign of struggle. And the toxicology reports, there was nothing in his blood. So he hadn't been drugged in any way. And he hadn't been beaten. So when all is said and done, this case was ruled a suicide, even though we have a ton of questions still. Because his doctors, for example, told investigators his cancer wasn't back. Uh, He had received no news. 
that he was terminal or his cancer had returned. Liar. So some people question what Lowell said as truth. And honestly, the whole Lowell thing in general. And there are some theories. First of all, seems that the reason he wanted to stage it as a murder was pretty simple. He wanted life insurance policies to pay out to his son and Lowell. Uh, which they didn't, by the way, because after this death was ruled a suicide, right? they don't get that money. Man. Also, after talking to Joe, Joe Oaks, my fiance, about life insurance policies. Never heard of him. No, Who's that? Uh, Your he's, former fiance. He's pretty, he's pretty nice. Yeah, my former fiance until I found this new guy in Colorado. <laughs> she does have a new soulmate. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I was talking to, I was telling Joe this story and he was like, oh yeah, you can't just assign a random person to your policy as a beneficiary. They have to be a family member, uh, you have to be married into the family or an employee or something. So this makes sense. Well, he remember he he was was paying Lowell. Okay. He was paying Lowell technically under the table, but yeah, he was employing him to be his quote unquote security. He basically he needed a reason to put his name on the policy, but why even leave him an insurance policy? Like who the fuck is this 20-year-old to him? That makes me think they were having a relationship. Well, one theory put forth that makes all the puzzle pieces seem to fit together at least for me is that Sparkman could have been a pedophile. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. Because if you think about and it, all the well, working go, with kids. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. So former altar boy, which like not all altar boys were abused, but then decades with the Boy Scouts, which I learned is as rife with pedophilia as the Catholic Church is. Yeah. So he was moved around with them a lot, which is something I found that the organization did with members who were accused of sexual abuse when I studied the Shakespeare case. The fact that he quit his job to become a volunteer at his son's school could have been because he was afraid his son would say something to his te- his adopted son by the way the single guy adopts this 2-year-old boy and as soon as he starts school he quits his paying job to volunteer at the school because to help his kid who's struggling in school yeah, if he's always he lurking around his son wouldn't feel safe to say anything yeah to did, anyone did josh ever say no whether or not his dad Mm-mm. I mean, it would explain a lot more of, like, the horrible behavior. Yeah, his son obviously hated his father. I Because obviously you, like, the the Boy Scouts thing was always suspicious because, you know, the Boy Scouts are the worst. So I was kind of like, I don't love that. But, yeah, the fact that he treated his dad like absolute trash. Yeah, it seems like he he hated him for something. And he giving him money and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, you know, it could be very much that he felt really guilty about what he had done or josh was straight up blackmailing him yeah Yeah. absolutely yeah and like obviously not every single boy scout leader is a pedophile that's not the assumption that i'm making it's just adding it all up together makes me suspicious especially from what we know about the scouts as an organization like, if you're listening and you were in the Scouts and you had a great time and you loved it and you didn't get molested, like, please don't take offense. It's just a fact that sexual assault is rampant yeah. in that organization, especially back in the day. And there are a few parts of this man's story and history that don't jive. I mean, Josh had, like, pretty lengthy behavioral issues. Right. 
The other teachers admitting they talked about him and all agreed he was kind of strange. No relationships at all, uh, aside from a 20-year-old guy named Lowell who was so adamant that they weren't in a sexual relationship. And if you remember, his relationship with Lowell started because Lowell was one of Josh's friends. Mm -hmm. And then Sparkman became a friend of Lowell's family and then sort of weaseled his way in becoming his tutor when he was 14. Oof, and yeah. now he's like paying him this money to ride around with him and leaves him an insurance policy. It just yeah. like, it didn't make, it doesn't make sense. And then the fact that he threw away his computer and phone and they never found them. Right. They are undoubtedly burned up or like tossed in a lake somewhere in Kentucky so if there was any evidence of pedophilia or child porn, that's where they would have found it. Absolutely. He was covering up. Obviously, this could be way off. And all of these things are completely mm. circumstantial. But even when I was reading the breakdown of this case, before I thought about researching theories, so many of these things popped out at me in this story that made me question Sparkman as being this like good guy. Who right. Now, again, this is like the twist that I was talking about earlier. Like I now that we are backtracking and going over everything that he did and even going back to that moment where you were like, Lowell was very adamant, like we did not have a relationship. Yeah. I didn't want to drink beer with him because I didn't want people to think I was gay. But the fact that he had to say that over and over again, like, yes, again, it is Kentucky. And maybe you just think you have to say that. But there's a part of me that thinks maybe he was overly defensive because something had happened and he was feeling so much shame and fear. It's like all of that adds up in the end. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Actually. Yeah. The assignment was solved. Yeah. Yeah, I don't feel like this is solved. (laughs) He killed himself. I have many questions. (laughs) You did not understand the assignment. (laughs) You you did us wrong because I am left Listen, with more questions. Off the rails. The case <laughs> is solved. You're he right. Um, Technicality, though. The like reason it. that he killed himself, I, I mean, there's a ton. Like, say he was not a pedophile at all. I mean, he was obviously going through a really, really shitty time. Like, falling out with his son, in debt, money problems, worked his way through school and then couldn't get a job. Like, he was obviously upset. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, with the state of things there was just a lot of things with this case that made me question like is that why he killed himself yeah 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 but yeah he Mysterious. uh nothing to do with feds nothing no. to do with the feds nothing to do with drugs he yeah because himself. nobody is like fuck the u.s census takers <laughs> <laughs> They show up on my porch every nine and a half years. I fucking hate it. You never hear about census bureau people. No. Being brutally murdered. If you show up at my door one more time, I swear. (laughs) Oh, my God. And, like, the people in the area were very anti-Fed because the Feds were busting so many drugs. Rings and drug lords and drug whatever. But, yeah, like, he was a census worker. Yeah. He wasn't a Fed. You're right. Yeah. I mean, he was kind of trying to paint his murderer, if he did that, like they were a fucking idiot, but they obviously kind of knew what they were doing if he did, you know, Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I was actually, you know, usually when we cover cases, true crime and stuff on the show, 
This was the first time I ever got to cover anything where the investigators were doing like a really good job. It is so rare that we say that, but I am <laughs> yeah. totally with you. It feels like they really were doing a good job and they, they were like, like going over every detail. The wrong people. No. And they were doing, they were trying to do the polygraph accurately. Like you can yeah, appreciate that because it, it sucks. Uh, coming out of rural Kentucky, Appalachia, again, no offense. I'm from around the same area. I'm just saying. And like conducting this investigation and like some of the, the things that they they linked up in their brain was really impressive. And yeah. I was just like happy to tell a story where it wasn't like, and the investigators are horrible right. and they fucked this up and they fucked that up. Mm-hmm. No, they actually did a good job. Yeah. I love it. Well, make me sad again, Lauren. Well, that's, see, listen, everybody. What? I I feel mm. like any time we do something true crimey on this show, I am known to do like the most depressing and horrific things ever. But I actually, mm-hmm. like, I have a happy ending to my story, you <gasps> yes, guys. For yes. once oh. in I'm my so damn life. I'm so glad you're going yeah. last. I, when you said the order that things were going at the beginning of the episode, I was sort of like, oh, good, because mine, I think, is going to be the most joyful. <laughs> um, yeah, I usually have the longest notes and the most depressing story, but I have the shortest notes and a happy story. So it's a new me, everybody. Nice. Um, okay. <laughs> but there is. Take that, 2022. We're coming Take for you. I'm changing. Okay. But the beginning is sad, of course, because, you know, here we are. It's. It's it starts out as a case, so you know it's coming. But I also right. have an abduction story, but a little bit different from what Amy told us in part one. We're heading to the eighties. Thank God. There is a sweet little girl named Monica Bonilla, who was the daughter of Guillermo Ruiz Bonilla and a woman named Rosemary Levi. They were living in Los Angeles in the valley in Burbank. So oh close my gosh, to home neighbors. for me and Ashley. And according to Rosemary, the mom. Her and Guillermo had a very normal, happy relationship in the 70s. They had their child together. It hits 1980. She's five years old. Everything had been going fine. But Guillermo suddenly began to change and get more aggressive. And it was like 1980 leading into 1981. His behavior began to change radically after the murder of John Lennon in 1980, which happened in December at the end of the year. Interesting. One day he what an odd okay. No, it is. Yeah. It's so weird. And what's funny is like it this this has nothing to do with the mystery, but it's like why he became an asshole, which I think is so weird. Yeah. His behavior just it changed. As soon as the assassination happened, he woke up a few days later and said, John is reincarnated in my body. I am oh. John Lennon. I mean, that makes sense. John Lennon was a garbage person. So, you know, yeah, it seems like (laughs) him and Guillermo, to be honest, like probably would have been buds. But he just wakes up and says this one day and it's like, hey, we've talked about reincarnation on the show. We like to, Mm -hmm. you know, believe in these things. But I don't know this. I'm not digging Guillermo in this moment. And Rosemary just seems like the sweetest little lady. I mean, here's the thing. If he did prove it. Yeah, um, I'm going to need a little more evidence here. Sing a song, my man. He didn't have it. Exactly. I'm sure at one point Rosemary was like, okay, you're going to need to give me a little bit more. But he just kept saying, (laughs) 
nope, John Lennon's in my body, and you're just going to have to buy it. So this sweet woman is just like, um, excuse me, like trying to get any information out of him, but instead he just he just becomes this angry, distant, like horrible man. He maybe does- he did. <laughs> I know. After Amy maybe was John like, well, John Lennon, Lennon sucks. Maybe John like, Lennon well. did. John Lennon did hit women. <laughs> well, yeah. Actually, I'm believing so, more and more this guy's telling the truth. But either way, we don't know. But it, go on. It, it ruined Rosemary's to- life. But we do know. <laughs> He did. He was him. Yeah. We do know for sure that he was John Lennon. So he okay. was 100% science. He starts making Rosemary's life hell. Um, He becomes a horrible person. He does everything he can to look like him. He grows his beard out, lets his hair grow long, purchased all the clothing and accessories, just completely takes on the John Lennon lifestyle. It is consuming his life. Rosemary and their sweet little five-year-old daughter, by the time it hits 1980, she's five. She's adorable. He's just not paying any attention to them. He's a monster. And according to Rosemary, Guillermo's changes Mm. just made things worse for their marriage. There was nothing she could do anymore. They had nothing in common. She couldn't even talk to him. Like their family. She's like, I don't even like the Beatles. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not a fan of the band. I don't. It would be different. I'm a Rolling Stones girl. She wanted no part of Beatlemania. She had to get out of there. Um, Yeah, they had nothing left in common. So she was like, listen, you might have John Lennon in your body, but I have to get out of here. So they decide to get a divorce, and she is fighting for full custody of Monica, as she should. Why? Yes, because uh, this guy's nuts. (laughs) But on September 22nd, 1982... Um, Rosemary comes home from work and she finds their Burbank home completely empty. They were missing all of their furniture, every possession, even the light fixtures were taken out. Things are ripped out of the walls. It is left completely bare. She also came back to see the only items left in the house were like wedding pictures and wedding, you know, items like candlesticks, things. Everything was completely destroyed and broken, looked like they had been thrown against a wall, smashed with a sledgehammer. So the only thing she did have were anything related to their wedding day left behind. But everything else was taken out of walls. And the biggest thing to have gone missing, her daughter, Monica. There was no sign of Monica anywhere, but also no sign of Guillermo, who had still been living there as they're trying to figure things out. Both of them had vanished without a trace. The next day, you know, during all the search, obviously, she immediately contacts the police and the search is on. The investigation is on. But the next day, one of Guillermo's relatives contacts Rosemary and simply says, without any other clues, you will never see Monica again. They introduced themselves. I couldn't find which relative it was. It sounds like it was one of his siblings, but they simply said, I would never. John. <laughs> it was John Lennon. <laughs> said <It's> Paul. <laughs> Ringo Starr. Ringo. Ringo. It was available. Ringo Starr. <laughs> what else was he doing? He said, you will never see Monica again, and then hung up. She was left with nothing, no Jesus. clues, no useful information, just the news that her five-year-old daughter was gone forever. And she now, of course, was suspecting it already, but now knows for sure that Guillermo has her because of this relative contacting her. So this is what's crazy. It's an abduction, but it's a parental abduction, a parental kidnapping, as the authorities would call it. And so you'd think, okay, well, 
we can figure this out because we know who the person is. We this know who took her. This isn't yeah. a full mystery, but they he truly vanishes without a trace. And like this is the 80s. We don't have all the technology that we do now. And they could not – they couldn't find this guy. There were just not enough clues. Even with the way he left their home, it was just like because he took everything and, you know, they're not doing – they're not like finding all of the little – I don't know. I can't even explain what I'm trying to say, but there's just no way to like even swab the area to be like, oh, well, this is yeah, a clue to this and that. I don't know. They, they just... know who took her. Oh, and so it's just she a matter of yeah. photos of her daughter. So she couldn't even put it on the news yeah. to be like, bring this kid back. Yes. It's like, we know oh. exactly who has her, but where did they go? And like, the world is at their fingertips. We have no Are idea. Are they where even gone. in the country? Totally. So she's just left feeling completely hopeless that her daughter is gone. And then even more painful, two months later, a judge awarded Rosemary custody of Monica that she had been fighting for. Cool. But her daughter is missing. So it's just like the biggest slap in the face of like, thank you. But where the hell is she? Um, Thanks, but I don't know where she is. Yeah. yeah. I like that it took two months I know. for them to be like, hey, guess what? And she's like, this could have happened about two months and a day ago. I really needed this a long time ago, assholes. But there's our justice system working, working well, for us. Well, the thing is, though, is that like she was willingly letting him stay with them while True. he looked for another place to stay. So I don't think that it would have mattered to him if he had custody or not of the kid. I mean, you're right. It's like he he was in their life enough. And Guillermo fucking sucks. And she was she was too kind. She was giving him extra chances and letting him, you know, come and go as he pleased and stay with them. And it's like she was being too kind. So she is awarded custody. She's fucking pissed. She's praying every day, staying hopeful. Sweet Rosemary is like, I'm going to find my daughter. At least we know she's with Guillermo. She could be literally anywhere, but I am holding out hope. And at least you can hold out hope that he won't harm her in any way, yes. too. You hope that. Because it's, it's like her you're father. The dad. I yeah. mean, you hope that. I was going to say, we just heard two stories in which fathers mm, aren't super great to their kids. Right. So, like, maybe not. But that is something you can at least, like, you know, yeah, hang think, on to. I think she was hoping for that, even though he had become a monster in the last two years. Because, like, 1980 was when things really switched with his personality. And then 1982 is when he left. And she's like, okay, yeah, this guy sort of went off the rails in the last couple of years. But he is the father. So, like, maybe she is safe somewhere. But, yeah, again, it's that is why these cases with parental kidnappings are so wild. Because you know who did it. But they it took eight years just over eight years eight years for anything oh. to happen in the time since the kidnapping she did remarry because i mean she had been out of like checked out of the marriage for a couple of years already but right. in the time even though she was mourning and she was searching you know she did find love throughout it someone who could support her during the time so she did get remarried and had a son with this new man named dorian and in the time spent over twenty thousand dollars searching for monica endlessly but there were no leads in the case for over eight years. Like, absolutely nothing. Nobody mm, knew where mm, he was. Mm, the family mm, members mm. were staying, like, tight-lipped, everything. But then, this is, like, a crazy thing that happened. On November 21st, 1990, eight years later, the show Unsolved Mysteries featured a segment about a four-year-old girl named Nyleen Marshall, who mysteriously disappeared while picnicking with her family in Helena, Montana. As a result of this broadcast, hundreds of viewers called into the call center with tips and clues and whatever they thought. 
one of the calls was a school official in Vancouver. The official believed that one of her students was Nylene, living in Point Roberts, Washington, which is near the Canadian border. So they thought this person was living in Washington, but coming over the border to the school in Vancouver. But they were very sure that Nylene was living under a fake name. So every day, a 12-year-old girl named Marianne Kelly was driven to school in Vancouver by her father, Robert Kelly. Most people who came in contact with this man, Robert Kelly, thought he was incredibly suspicious, just so shady, so off. They noted he was difficult. He kept telling people he was a beetle. <laughs> he was like, I really love the beetle. And we were like, you're Mexican. There's no way you're a beetle. <laughs> you are not a white man. You you're have to get out of here. the same age. <laughs> Nothing adds Yoko up. Yoko so Ono wouldn't give you the fucking time, time of, of day. day. You couldn't get Yoko if you You can't tried. write a song to save your life. <laughs> Anyways, go on. Fuck off, Robert. Super suspicious. They noted he was difficult to contact. He had no telephone number where he could be reached. Anytime he was asked for an address, he would say he was between addresses, but said that mm. for years. Classic. Classic lie. School officials were also concerned because of what Robert would do when he dropped Marianne off at school. According to her teacher, when she would come into the classroom, he would stand at the window, that tiny little window in classroom doors, and watch Marianne through the windows for almost the entire first period to make sure that she stayed there. And what they thought was watching, like, who she would talk to, kind of seeing what she was going to tell. So his behavior was frightening the teacher. It was frightening all staff members, basically. And after this broadcast came out about the missing four-year-old girl, the teachers began to say, I think this Marianne girl is actually Nyleen Marshall. So school officials contact the FBI, who put Marianne and Robert Kelly under surveillance. The agents also reviewed her school records and discovered that they had been completely faked. These people were not who they said they were. There is no background to support anything that they wrote down. But the agents wanted to be careful not to spook Robert that, you know, they're on to him. So they, they're still yeah. keeping their distance till they gather enough evidence. But they're finally able to get a search warrant and say, like, okay, now we have the time. Let's bust in there. So it's December of 1990. FBI agents arrived at the Kelly home with their search warrant. They bust in. The house was searched extensively. And eventually, in a closet, they find a box labeled bathroom articles and inside was a photo album with pictures of guillermo monica and rosemary along with monica's birth certificate proving who she is so it became clear to investigators that marianne kelly was not the suspected nylene that the whole school thought but instead monica bonilla which i think is wild because they did find a missing girl but it was the wrong girl which missing girl yes well which it's like it's wonderful in one way. What like Nylene, though. I agree. I'm not saying like fuck Nylene. Yeah, you're like I'm but so happy, but it, I just thought it was nuts. Yeah, something yeah. something came out of the search, but it's like whoa, it's not even this isn't even the girl we thought, even though everything kind of pointed to this Nylene Marshall girl because the age was mm-hmm. very close. A lot of it, a lot of the details just made sense, but this mistaken identity led investigators to Monica Bonilla. It's banana town, but thank God they found someone. So Guillermo, who had been posing as Robert Kelly for the last several years, was arrested in Washington state, and he agreed to surrender himself finally after hours and hours of questioning and trying to, you know, come up with every excuse. He did say he would be uh, sent back to Los Angeles and he would surrender himself to L.A. authorities to face his charges of parental kidnapping. So he went back. He's going to be in prison basically forever. 
Um, Monica told authorities that she was treated well by her father. And now maybe Guillermo was. Except for that he wouldn't fucking leave her alone ever. He wouldn't. Get a life, bro. Like the way he spied on her in the classroom. And like, but now even I wasn't thinking this before, but after Ashley's story, there is a part of me that wonders, like, was he doing anything shady to her? The fact that he had to hover over her and make sure she wasn't talking. Mm. It could have been. Well, I mean, it could have been because of the don't tell anyone that that my name is really this or that your name is really. Yes. But she was what she was. She was five at the time of the kidnapping and wasn't put into school until she was 11 or 12. And then she was found when she was 13 so yeah i'm sort of like she might have been too young to remember and monica revealed she said i was treated well by my father and i always felt loved but i was told that my mother was dead and that's why we had to move away so he was basically saying your mother died and she was a horrible person so she is now having this horrible vision of her dead mother thinking like oh she was toxic and we had to escape and now she's dead and i'll never have a relationship with her like believing all these false things and so I don't know. I just wonder. I hope that that was it because that already fucking sucks. I hope that there wasn't like any other kind of abuse. But just after the stories we heard today, now I'm so worried. But I don't know. She never admitted to any of that. I don't know what she remembers from when she was young. But either way, she believed her mother was dead and she was a horrible person. So she just sort of believed and went with whatever her father said. But she was over the moon when she found out her mother was alive and she got to be reunited with her because the very faint memories she did have were of this loving, wonderful person. So that's why she, you know, her world was turned upside down when her dad tried to tell her otherwise. So they got to be reunited because even though her mother, Rosemary, her and her new husband and her son, Dorian, they were not very well off. And she had said, like, hey, I want to go find my daughter up in Washington State, but I can't afford the flight to go up there. But one of the investigators said, I will I will pay for your flight because you're going Aww. to meet your daughter, which was actually very sweet. That's sweet. So they flew her out to Washington. They got to be reunited on December 22nd, 1990. It was a beautiful reunion. Um, Monica was so stoked to meet Dory and her half-brother. It was this lovely moment. Uh, Rosemary said she hadn't celebrated Christmas since her daughter went missing over eight years ago, but was finally excited to have a real holiday all together with both her kids and her new husband, which is so sweet. So they actually had a very happy ending. Guillermo is rotting in prison. This family has been reunited. And from any of the updates I could find is still like good to go. They apparently went to some like intensive counseling because obviously Monica was not well and neither was Rosemary. But um, it actually seems like we have a happy ending here. And God, it's beautiful. Yeah. The one sad news I have to say, Nileen has never been found. Her case is still open. So I do. I just want to say that there. That's the one sad part. Nileen has been missing since she since 1983 when she was four years old. She went missing while in the mountains camping with her family in Montana. If anyone has any information, you know, come forward with it. But uh, we otherwise had a semi happy story. And that's my tale. Wow. I can't believe. Here's the thing. If Joe Mm -hmm. woke up tomorrow and was like, I'm John Lennon. (laughs) Two years. 
No. I can't believe that she like sort of tried to work it out with him for two years, which we don't know the whole story. Those details aren't out there. But the fact that like the custody battle and the divorce didn't start happening till 1982, I'm like, no, that would last about two months for me. And then I'd have to go. (laughs) Be like, all right, you need to snap out of this fucking John Lennon bullshit real quick. Yeah. And Ashley, you need to watch out for that because Joey loves the he Beatles. He loves the Beatles. He it's loves true. them. He fucking loves the Beatles. Any day he could wake up and tell me he's a Beatle and I'm just going to have to deal with that. Yeah. Hopefully he's one of any of them besides John. I know. Hopefully I he's actually, Ringo. I was just going to say, like, you got to hope for Ringo. George Harrison yeah, doesn't seem so, so bad. George, yeah. George yeah, seems George, 100%. George had the best solo career, in my opinion. Mm, I can get with so, that. I mean, I would... Well, I, I would agree with your opinion as far as like quality. I was going to say quality yeah. as far as success. I Not mean, like Sir success, Paul, of course, we have yeah. to say Sir Paul, but I, yes, he is, I love me some the George most Harrison. successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know what's really good? Those Linda McCartney vegetarian frozen <laughs> meals. Really? <laughs> that to me is the most successful. Yeah. Cause I used to be vegetarian. I would eat those and I was like, look, this is pretty good. This is really good fake chicken. Okay. Linda, I see you. I'm here for so, it. So thank you, Paul, for, you know, probably funding that. <laughs> yeah, thanks. We for, appreciate for Paul's financial assuming, vegetarian nuggets. I am assuming that if she had just been like a random person and she was like, hey, I have a meal thing that I want to do, they would have been like, no, we're good. But because <laughs> she was like, uh, my husband is, I don't know if you've heard of the Beatles, <laughs> but he is one of them. And they were like, oh, great. Oh, great. We'll put you in every grocery store in okay. town. Give me those <laughs> yep. beefless burgers. <laughs> <laughs> we're here for it, Linda. We love it. Thanks, Linda. Thanks, Linda. R.I.P. R.I.P. I didn't know she was dead. Well, um, <laughs> I was just about to say I didn't know she was dead. And thank you, Amy, for your education. <laughs> uh, okay. Amy, did you make that up? Is she dead? She has been dead for, I want to say, like, 20 years? 15, oh, 20 years? Jesus. Okay. okay. Well, geez. I, where have yeah. I been living? Yeah, she died in 1998. Well, Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where have I been? I'm sorry. I didn't know that you know, there was a new mystery that was solved. <laughs> well, me and Ashley <laughs> have to go to lay Saturday. flowers at her grave because this is a new thing. <laughs> um, also, I wait. Mean, I know this is a total yeah, side note, but I just found this out because of the Netflix documentary. Did anybody else know that Bob Ross was dead? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, I, I never assumed, mind but I didn't, I never, I never, <laughs> I never really thought about it. <laughs> I, I just, there's a new documentary, which I, we like to plug docs on the show. Watch the Bob Ross documentary because Happy Little mm-hmm. Tree Man has like a little bit of a dark story, but I did not know that he was dead. And when they said it on the dock, I nearly fell out of my chair. So I was, I just had to ask. All right. I thought that Christian Slater was dead. You did, and I'm not oh sure why. Um, and but I then all you. of a sudden, I saw an ad for Doctor Death, and his <laughs> face was on it, and I was like, "I thought he died." But weren't you thinking of Patrick Swayze? Okay, I thought you really liked Christian Slater. I have I'm zero surprised. feelings for or oh. against Christian Slater. Okay, take it back. I thought but... you were a big Heather's fan. I guess. Oh, oh I mean, gosh. it's great. Love Heather's. But yeah, I just I I never really had anything. It wasn't a Slater head. One of our listeners pointed out when you posted that in the Facebook group that you were probably thinking of Patrick Swayze, which honestly broke my heart even more that you would confuse the two of them. 
Well, no, I actually, I th- I thought maybe Patrick Swayze or um, what's his name from Twister. Oh, Bill, oh, Bill Pullman. Pullman. Bill Pullman. <laughs> I love that Bill me Pullman. and Amy Paxton? knew that right away. Paxton. It's Paxton. No, Paxton. Bill Paxton. It is Paxton, but so we both was Pullman is Pullman. still alive. Bill Pullman's, Bill Pullman's alive. Wait, <laughs> so is Bill Paxton. <laughs> Hold on. No, Bill Paxton's no. dead. <gasps> Bill Paxton died? Bill Paxton is dead. No. Yeah. You're lying. Yes. Uh-uh. How'd he oh die? Oh, my God. Why are we making this even more sad? Because than I have was. questions. Hey, do you guys want to hear a list of people who are dead? Somebody tell me how Bill Paxton died because I don't believe you. Titanic and uh, Twister are two of my favorite attack, movies. Yeah. Oh, my God. I have to go lay flowers on his grave. Yeah. Oh. Wait, who was he in Titanic? Um, At the he beginning the of the guy, movie he when he's talking to Granny. He was, he was the was guy, on. yeah. He's in the present day oh, crew. Like, right. Mm. I was like th- picturing him in an old-timey mustache. No, 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 no. he's in the present day. I was actually just day. picturing him from Tombstone. Oh, God. But on Titanic. No, yeah, Lauren, Bill Paxton. died in 2017. <sighs> Man. Guys, this has been a real whirlwind of emotions. Oscar Wilde. I don't want (laughs) to blow your mind. I will murder you. Princess Diana died as well. Oh, she did. I just... Guys. Um, Okay, we should move on. Well, that's all the time we have. (laughs) (laughs) This way for Keep It Weird. If anyone has any more information on celebrities who's died that we're not sure have died, just send those in, please. (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning in and listening every week. And thank you, Amy, for joining us and for being a part of our Patreon. We love having having me. Um, Everyone should join the Patreon so you can listen to Amy every week. Um, The show is called Keep It Beard. Every month. Yes. (coughs) Every month. uh, The show is called Keep It Beard. It's really, really fantastic. We do little, little short. Not short. I mean, the episodes mm, are an hour long. I was going to say, you still make We do little content. snippets of, of weird stories that, that don't make it on the, the, the big show. Amy's the, the best. Big show, you the should all show. be a patron if you're cool. That was a terrible yeah. ad. Yeah, Just cut that out. <laughs> sometimes Lauren hops on. I do. And those and are, Lauren's I'm not going to lie, those are, I feel like, our best episodes. Those oh, are some good episodes. All right, they're good, yeah. too. Amy, do you have anything to plug? I mean, are you even on Instagram anymore? Did you bail? Did you abandon ship? Hansel oh, Pants? Um, At Hansel Pants. Yeah, I think my Instagram's private. Aww. Well, follower. <laughs> I think the last time I posted something was when, is was like July of 2020. Well, all right. It's so been basically, a if you want to know about Amy's life, you have to join the Patreon. So. <laughs> you have to join the Patreon. And also, then you can listen to uh, the episodes with Joe. Which is mm-hmm. called "Keep It Seared," yes, which yes. I'm actually going to take credit for because I named it. Amy you did, it. and Joe and hates it, and, and that honestly, makes me happy. So yeah, I was like, "Your title is genius," and I love that Joe is against it. It makes it a little better. Lauren and her sister are starting yeah. to take over a couple months of bonus episodes now that Joe and say. I have our own podcast. So you have to think of another word that rhymes with weird, seared, and beard. Yeah. Amy, me. I'm putting that on you. <laughs> you are Do you the, guys cry a lot? You Can come we call up with it our keep it tiered? Oh. Keep it tiered? Keep it tiered would honestly be good because Julia is the emotional <laughs> part of the bonus She's episodes. The reason yeah. that we're bringing her back is because so many listeners requested her and love her, and it's because mm-hmm. she talked about hospice care, which yeah. brings the tears. So yep. keep it tiered. Keep it tiered, Julia. Well, She's we did it. Right. We did a lot You're today. Welcome. Thanks, Amy. 
Nailed it. <laughs> Make sure you guys are following us on social media at Keep It Weirdcast. That's our handle. Donate to our Patreon to get discounts on merch, shoutouts on the show, giveaways, bonus episodes, and a newsletter every single month. It's a pretty choice Patreon, if I do say so myself. It's pretty great. Uh, and we actually put things on there. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there that are very popular that promise you an episode every month and can't even deliver on that. Guess what, bitches? We <laughs> always do. You can find it all at www.patreon.com slash keepitweirdpodcast and grab a piece of merch from our Etsy store. We've got shirts, mugs, sweatpants, blankets, tank tops, and hoodies, and you can find it all at www.etsy.com slash shop slash keepitweirdpodcast. Amy. Sing us a song, piano man. It's time. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) Arson is bad. Murder is worse. If you're gonna touch a kid, go watch TV first. Here's an idea for something you can go see. Saved by the Bell is good for you and me. You should just go and watch the new Saved by the Bell. And if you do that, instead of touching kids, you won't go to hell. Let's all protect all the children in the world. Watch Saved by the Bell. And don't murder girls. Wow. You've done it again. How do you always do it? I mean, I just love you. Basically, outsiders of any kind. Sorry. <laughs> it felt like that came so quickly after you finished the it sentence I wasn't came, ready. I didn't even get the D out. Oh, boy. In okay. the word kind. <laughs>